Okay, if I say the words, I have a dream, what comes to mind, right? Martin Luther King Jr. It's probably safe to say that, I'll be generous, half of us in this room were not born when that speech was even given. But yet, if I say those four words, I have a dream, you all get it immediately, what I'm talking about. In fact, you could probably go down to the elementary school age kids and say those four words, and they would mostly get it uh, because they've either had their teacher read it to them. I mean, my kids watch it on YouTube, the actual speech every Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So why is it then that I'm bringing this up in the first place? Why do I mention this speech by Martin Luther King Jr.? Simply to state an obvious point that dreams can be some of the most evocative forms of vision known to humanity. And if you can share your dream or your vision with people in such a way that it is caught, you can change a life, a culture, a society, you can change the course of the world. Tonight's story involves a dream. But before we get to the dreamer and his dream, we need to set the scene, and I didn't mean for all that to rhyme, but Call me a lyrical gangsta. Anyway, uh, as we enter Genesis 37, we enter the final saga of the patriarchs in Genesis. I mean, this is it. This is when we start today, we're heading down to the end of Genesis. For the next 10 chapters, we're going to be invited into one of the most colorful, challenging, intriguing stories in Genesis. And we've had some colorful ones already, so that's saying a lot. Now, you know there's some parts of the Bible that lend themselves to, uh, to preach like one or two verses because those two verses might be so packed with theological significance that you, know, you just can't see yourself moving on past one or two verses. In fact, uh, just a, a year or so ago, we preached for almost an entire calendar year in six chapters, the book of Ephesians. It was just so packed full of good stuff that, that we took it very slowly and we savored each bite. There's other parts in the Bible, like the section we're in now, that require reading in larger sections. And I just want to say, if you want the extra credit, if you want to get more out of this series for the next 10 weeks, let me encourage you to read chapter 37 up through the rest of Genesis once a week if you're an overachiever. I'm telling you, you'll get more out of it. Sometimes it just does us good to be exposed to a flood of Scripture rather than breaking it down into its finer points. And after all, I think that's why uh, each year we've made this commitment as a church during the fall season to return to a book of the Old Testament, recognizing that even though we're people of uh, followers of Jesus, that we are rooted in these stories of God throughout all time. So, if we're people that are rooted into this story of God from Genesis, then we better learn it, right? And to help us enter this story, I want to ask for your participation. Okay, so this is what I want to do. If you are on the left side of the room, so your left over here, and that includes Joe, so Joe's on this side, uh, I want you to read the part of Joseph's brothers. And it's going to come up on the screen when it's your time. It'll say brothers, and you will read Joseph's brother's side. Now, right side of the room, including Josh, uh, I would love it if you would read the part of Joseph himself. And again, it'll be a little Joseph colon and words, and you read the ones after Joseph's name. Now I need one volunteer to read the part, it's very short, of the mysterious stranger in the wilderness. Do I have one volunteer to read the part of the mysterious... You, you get a little costume if you... Alright, Justin, come on down, mysterious... Alright, Justin, you get to wear my bathrobe. Come on up. Yes, mysterious stranger. Now you're... 
much taller man than I, so maybe don't even, don't put your arms in it, but you'll look like really mysterious if you put this over your head like, like a Jedi Knight or something. And then take this staff and let's, uh, yeah, you could go Gandalf, there's all kinds of different looks. And, um, and you can kind of stand like this so that they're seeing how mysterious you are, but you can also see your part in the, in, in the saga, in the saga. Okay, okay. All right. So I will read the part of the narrator and also, um, and also Jacob. He has a few lines. I'll take those. All right, here we go. Why don't we stand? It'll be more participatoriness. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Then his brother said to him, So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream, and he related it to his brothers and said, He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you on the ground? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come. And I will send to you to them. And he said to them, I will go. Then he said to him, Now go and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him there from the valley of, to the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, Then the man said, They have moved on from here, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And when they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another,
But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Reuben further said to them, that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore them to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments and returned to his brothers and said, So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, Then he exclaimed it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Father, thank you for uh, the story not because it's just interesting, although thank you that it's not boring. Uh, but Lord, thank you that your fingerprints are all over this. And thank you that you're the kind of God who works with us, in spite of us, thank you sometimes. And you're a God who can turn something so dastardly and evil and make something beautiful out of it. Lord, we don't want to be delusional and think that that happens in an instant, in a day, that it happens without suffering. We know quite well um, that there is suffering. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to hope, hope beyond hope, that you are in control, behind the scenes, working all things to your will. Amen. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. All right. The there's no parody in this group. We've got Susie Clark over here and Elizabeth. Okay, we've got all the actors over here. All right. Great, great reading on both, both sides. So what a great story, right? I mean, is this fun to read? There's so much action and intrigue and subtlety. I mean, the, the stuff that's not said. I mean, you could just imagine maybe the feelings of these, of these actors in the story or these characters. 
And maybe more accurately than saying chapter 37 is a great story, it's really a great introduction to a great story. I mean, it's just, it's just the prologue to a much greater saga. And in this chapter we just read, it has plenty of action for several sermons. Uh, but it really just introduces some of the themes that we're going to see played out later on in the weeks to come. So, for example, there's this theme of the interplay between God's sovereignty and human free will, whatever that is. Okay? And, and there's this, this, this theme of the consequences of human sin on the one hand, and God's providence and using that and, and shaping everything to His will on the other. The story introduces us to some of the main characters, and introduces us to some of the main character's character. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you get introduced to Joseph and Jacob, uh, you know, Judah and Reuben and these guys. But you also get to see a little bit, a foreshadowing of the type of people they are. Which is going to matter because in about ten weeks when we see the payoff of this story, you're going to see what their character has become like through their experiences with God. So let's dig deeper into chapter 37 and just begin uh, with the saga of Joseph. We're going to have much greater appreciation for it, I, I swear, in about eight weeks. But uh, our story immediately tells us where we are. We are in Canaan, uh, which is in the, promised, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, we are focused in this land on one man in particular, Joseph. who The scripture tells us clearly he's not a man, he is a youth. It says that explicitly, and then it goes on to tell us his age. He's 17 years old. Joseph is the son of Jacob by his pretty wife, Rachel, his favorite wife. Uh, Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife over his other wife, Leah, and over his concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. All right? Now, the fact that we know from the Bible that Rachel is Jacob's favorite wife and that Joseph is Jacob's favorite son screams to me dysfunctional family. Uh, you, 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 we even have this book, like when our third child was due, you know, Corey was expecting, and it's like, um, we love you all the same, I think. It's like the title. It's really cheesy, actually, but it's like to help the, the older two kids, and we don't love them any less because this new one's coming, all that stuff. Uh, jo Jacob wasn't thinking about these things, obviously. He had his favorite wife, and he had his favorite boy. In fact, he loved Joseph so much that he gave him this special cloak or a tunic. And you've probably heard in Sunday school that it has lots of colors on it. And thanks to Andrew Lloyd Webber, we now know that the coat was actually in technicolor. Who knew? Uh, but actually, scholars are almost unanimous that the coat wasn't multicolored. I'm sorry. It makes a boring children's Bible if it's just like a drab coat. Uh, but what the, the words actually there describe is that the coat was long past the wrist and hung down below the ankles. Now, that's not just a vague detail. That's an important detail, and let me tell you why. Jacob's family was a shepherding family. They're nomadic. And all the older brothers are pastors. You're pastoring the, the flock, right? And uh, shepherds didn't wear cloaks like that. You couldn't really move. That, that was not a blue-collar workers kind of coat. That's the kind of coat that management wears. That the boss wears, the foreman wears. And in giving Joseph that coat, he was saying, hey, I know that this kid is only 17, and by the laws of the land, he's not even an heir to my estate, but I'm making a statement. This is the kid I think is special in the family. This is the one I want to rule. Hmm. So Joseph is this 17-year-old favorite. 
And he's with his half-brothers who are all older than him. And Joseph comes to his father with a bad report about his brothers. Like, okay, what's going on with this guy? Uh, I mean, we don't know what's going on here. A couple things. Could be the brothers really were screwing off. Who knows what they were doing, like tip, cow tipping or sheep tipping or whatever they were doing. So, dad, they're wasting time, okay? So maybe it was a real report. Uh, but just the language, I'll spare you all the details. It basically implies a really negative report. And sometimes this language is used when someone makes up a report or gives a false testimony. So whether these guys are really screwing off or not, the point is, is that Joseph is coming back and kind of tattling on them. It's negative. And it, it evokes this quote from the brothers. Uh, they hated him and could not speak friendly to him on any terms. So it's safe to say there's some tension in this family. The family that God chose to rescue the world, the family that God chose to, um, to bring all the nations together, they can't even get along their own flesh and blood, their own brothers. So as we continue, we learn that Joseph has a dream and he tells it to his brothers and they hate him all the more. Is the specific words that, that we read. Why? Why would they hate him? Because his dream is symbolic that they would bow down to him. And, and it gets better than that. Joseph has another dream. And this one not only includes, includes his brothers, but it includes his mom and dad bowing down to him. Not even Jacob liked that second dream because parents were not subordinate to their children ever. Now, a quick note on dreams, which I, I think is an order. In our culture, dreams are highly mysterious and seemingly random. And most of us don't put too much stock in our dreams that we have at night. Our sciences tell us that dreams are probably just random synapses firing at night. Or maybe it's our subconscious working out details or, or stressful things in our life, like working them out while we sleep. Biologists tell us that, that dreams are simply the result of the compounds that we eat. For example, studies have shown that if you have a high-protein diet before you hit the pillow, you'll have more vivid color dreams. Try that one tonight. But in the, ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, dreams were viewed as having meaning in the waking world. So you had a dream, it's going to have significance in the real world. And dreams were believed to be given by God. And there's more. When you had two dreams close together and they're complementary like Joseph had, it meant that was confirmation that the dream would come to pass. And by the way, in the current Near East, not the ancient Near East, but today in places like Egypt and other Near Eastern countries, dreams are still viewed as from God or, uh, or have something to say about your waking world. And in fact, most Muslim converts to Christianity do it because they've had a dream or a vision of Jesus coming to them. And if you ask people that minister to Muslims in the Near Eastern world, they'll tell you, we pray for dreams and visions happens so God gave Joseph this dream then why would his family be offended wouldn't they by now know that God is out for their best interest he's been so gracious to them he's rescued them time and time again uh, God has given them plenty of track record to trust him with right but I think that Joseph's dream is so hard to accept because it takes social norms and it turns them upside down 
In that culture, eldest males, eldest brothers were supposed to be the ones uh, who were preferred over the younger brothers. The elders had more honor and more power. The eldest of the eldest would receive a double portion of the inheritance. They would become the head of the tribe. And in this family and in this tribe, that meant that the eldest would be a patriarch, the leader of the people of God. But Joseph was a privileged, if not spoiled, younger brother. Even Jacob is disturbed by this dream. And as I said before, parents don't serve their children in this world. But Jacob was like re-evaluating all that favoritism uh, earlier on. Now, just a little side point before I move on. What if the dream that God gives us calls for countercultural an anti-popular living. What if that's the dream that God gives you? We'll hold that. We'll come back to it in some way or another. Well, whether or not the dream came from God, Joseph was not too wise in his exuberance to tell his brothers about it. I mean, they already think he's a punk. Now we know he's an arrogant one. And one day, Joseph's older brothers are out caring for the flocks near Shechem, and Jacob... The, the dad who loves this kid so much sends his son out with like day's journey away from any safety to the brothers. I mean, does that just strike you as bizarre? Is Jacob that clueless to send his golden boy out into the wilderness with brothers who openly hate him? It's like, okay, it's like one of those bad suspense movies. Like, like you've got the young lady who's home alone and it's a stormy night and the power goes out and you know there's like this mass psycho outside. Oh, I heard a stick break outside. I should unlock the door and check it out. Right? It's like every one of those movies is the same formula. Why? Don't, don't open the door. It's, it's like the same kind of thing. Who writes those movies? I wonder if they were reading the Bible. <laughs> so, anyway, so he goes out like a three-day journey. And he shows up uh, in the wilderness where they, they, he thought they would be in Shechem. And they're nowhere to be found. And he's not necessarily lost in the sense of he doesn't know where he is. He's like, yeah, I'm in Shechem. But he's lost in the sense that he's days away from home. And he doesn't want to fail his father. So he's got to find these brothers. And whatever direction he goes in, if he's wrong, he's just moving further away from home. Enter the strange man that Justin so wondrously acted up there. And the man just simply asked this question, this guy out of nowhere, what are you looking for? And Joseph tells him, and the man just happens to know where they are. It's like, oh yeah, I overheard strangers that are related to you saying, we're going to Dothan. Um, it's nearly 14 miles northeast of Shechem, by the way. Joseph, the point is, would have never found them. Like he would have never, I mean, think of... Think about how, how lost you can get in a car when you don't know the area, but like on foot. And you, you either, it's not like you go 40, 14 miles is about a day, depending on the train. Some of you studs, maybe Josh Burdick or something, you know, you get like 28 miles, whatever. But, you, you know, you go that way, they're not there. How far do you go? Do you go 20? Do you go 20, 30? Do you go days in one direction? You, think of the chances of finding them. But this stranger in the middle of nowhere goes, oh, I happen to hear the right guy say they're going to Dothan. Sounds a bit odd to me. I don't know about you. Stranger. Just happens to know where these nomadic herders are. 
You know what's interesting is that thus far in Genesis, whenever we've met a strange man like that, or a group of strange men, they haven't been men at all. But they've been angels. Or more interestingly, theophanies, which is just a fancy theology word for God disguised as a person. Our passage is extremely subtle. It doesn't say this was an angel. But by chapter 49, uh, once we've seen the extent that God goes to in this story to change his directions and to take care of him and to push him where he wants to be, well, you just might want to come back to these few verses and revisit this and ask yourself, who is this stranger in the wilderness? Well, we know the story from here. Joseph goes to Dothan and his brothers see him coming. Here comes that dreamer. And the more literal translation is, here comes that master of dreams. Kind of sarcastic, right? They plot his death. I, mean, I, know, I know this is a story and you read it a bunch of times, but like, brothers just plotted their brother's death. That's some serious Cain and Abel stuff going on. The eldest brother, Reuben, has this idea. He suggests they throw Joseph in a pit instead of just killing him with like a sword or something. Uh, and, and that way they don't have blood on their hands. But Reuben had an angle. In, in the previous chapter, uh, the Bible tells us that Reuben went and slept with his father's concubine. And that also, by the way, is a lot of his brother's mother. Okay? Because there's four moms in the family. A lot of half-brothers going on. Okay. And the reason that he did that is not just because he's a lusty fellow, but because as the oldest son, when you sleep with your father's concubine, or something, it's basically asserting your power and saying, uh, and in fact, Absalom does this to David, if you remember later on in the Bible. But, uh, it, it's an act of rebellion is what Reuben has done. And we don't know why he's still in the family at this point. Uh, remember how passive Jacob was before? Remember how gracious he's also been? For whatever re reason, Reuben is around. And he concocts this plan. What if, hey brothers, let's not kill Joseph. Let's put him in this pit. And then I'll get him out of the pit. And I'll take him to dad and say, here's your favorite lost son. No harm, no foul, dad. Can I still have the inheritance? You see the angle? So Reuben's trying to maybe make up for that uh, past mistake. Uh, that he made earlier on. Well, Reuben must have stepped out for something <laughs> because when these Ishmaelite traders come by, he's not there to stand in the way when Judah suggests, hey, I know, we can make some profit out of this and get rid of our bratty brother at the same time. Let's sell him to those guys and they'll take him out. 20 shekels of silver. 20 shekels of silver. Do you know why? That's the price of a slave that's aged between 5 and 20 years old, male. That's how much the going rate was, 20 shekels of silver. They sell their brother, the beloved son of their father, the patriarch, for the price of a common slave. It's stunning how evil this is. I mean, there's other details like, you know, he's in the pit and they just, let's have dinner. Can you imagine little Joseph crying out and there's like, ah, whatever, let's have our, our food. This, one of the, the sinful things I think that we may miss sometimes is think of what this would do to their dad. I mean, they might like their brother, but they know how much dad loves Joseph. And they're willing just to do this and know that their dad is going to suffer tremendously. They'd just taken his beloved son from them. They take Joseph's coat, they rough it up as if an animal maybe attacked it, dip it in goat's blood, 
take it to dad. And Jacob then says, he fills in the blanks. He says what must have happened is an animal must have got my son. He goes into great mourning. Do you see any irony there? Jacob, when he was a boy, deceives his blind father with a goat skin. And here he is deceived by his sons with goat's blood on this coat. I mean, it's just, you can't make this stuff up. That Jacob, in some way or another, even though he's been forgiven, even though he is still chosen by God to lead the people of God, he's reaping what he's sown. Well, the last thing we learn from the story is that Joseph is sold to an Egyptian officer named Potiphar, who's the captain of the bodyguard for Pharaoh himself. Joseph's story is just beginning, as of course we're going to see in the weeks to come. And now we're left with this weird moment. We're not just reading the Bible together. This is the preaching moment in our worship gathering. This is a sermon. And what do we do with a story like this? And so I thought it would be fun to share with you my process and how to preach this sermon. So when you come to Bible texts like this, you might be like, huh, I wonder, what's the payoff? What's the application of, of this, right? Um, so we recognize that chapter 37 is the introduction to a much larger story. So we could talk about the, the themes of God's providence and uh, how God uh, uses uh, evil deeds of people and makes them, turns them into good products. But I'll tell you why I'm not doing that tonight. Because later chapters in this story do it so much better. And I don't want to steal their thunder. So it's not time. It's premature to talk about that. We could talk about family dynamics. We could certainly do that. I've heard plenty of sermons on uh, why you shouldn't spoil your kids because of what happens with Jacob. All right. uh, you, you could talk about uh, sibling rivalry. Uh, how it, you know if you are the younger favorite child, you shouldn't be arrogant toward your elder brothers and sisters. Um, and all of these things would be, would be true. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's probably a true statement. It, it doesn't do people a lot of good to favor one kid over the other kind of stuff. But that, that's not what Scripture, that's not what these stories are here for. And we've looked at this over and over again in Genesis when we see stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we see these horrible things that they do and these sometimes wonderful things that they do, but never in Scripture, in those stories or this story, does the narrator or God imply, hey, guess what, I'm telling you this story so that you act like these people or so that you will not act like these people. Okay? That's not the main point of the story. You could pick up some good little nuggets of wisdom, but I don't think that's worthy of a, of a sermon on, the, on this particular point. So as a church, how do we faithfully reflect on chapters like this one. First of all, I want you to consider the fact that simply learning and knowing the stories of God and His people is of great value. You may not believe me. You may have read this over and over again. This may be one of the stories you've read with your kids. But let me tell you that if you learned anything today, if you're more familiar with this story than when you came here, it will, it will do you service. See, in our pragmatic culture, and I'm one of the worst, uh, we ask, why is this worth my time? What's the payoff for me? What three steps to make me happier or more full of life? Uh, what do I take away from this passage? How will it help me? Well, let me tell you why it's important. 
When you read the gospel accounts of Jesus, you can't help but feel like the things that he does and some of the things that he says are very foreign to you. They are. Because almost everything that Jesus says and almost everything that Jesus does in those gospel accounts are fulfilling. He's showing you, I am fulfilling the story of God. The great expectations of what God is doing. And if we don't know the story of God, we can still get Jesus to a small degree. Oh, but it means so much more. When you know the story, he's actually fulfilling. So that, to me, is worth the price of admission right there. If you don't know the story that Jesus is fulfilling, you won't grasp the full significance of who he is. So one reason we're going through Genesis and this particular chapter in Genesis is because it's part of the story of God. And Jesus' life, his very words and deeds and the stuff that happens to him has echoes from this story. Which leads me to another way we can access chapter 37. Now, first of all, let me reiterate something that I've mentioned before. The Old Testament is not outdated in the fact that it is not like, oh, we've got Jesus now, we don't need that book. We're not going to do like the Gideon Psalms and Proverbs and like we don't need the Old Testament. Sorry, that doesn't cut it. The Old Testament is the inspired word of God. It matters. It can stand alone. This story can stand alone on its own. Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets, so we don't do stuff like, I ate bacon today, very happily ate bacon. I'm sure this shirt has more than one kind of fiber in it. Uh, those kind of laws, Jesus fulfilled those. Hallelujah. Bacon. Okay, but, but the stories and, and the fact that these are God-breathed, that does not change, okay? So the Old Testament stands by itself. And the authors of the Old Testament often, even though they spoke better than they knew, and the things that they said uh, come alive in the New Testament, none of them, as they were writing, knew in a thousand years or two thousand years, there's going to be a guy who's born named Jesus of Nazareth. None of them knew him, okay? So the Old Testament is God-breathed. It's inspired. It is sent from God. But since we do know the story of Jesus, I can see how this story in Joseph just drips with allusions to Jesus. Or rather, how Jesus' story drips with allusions to the Joseph story. So, for example, God gave Joseph a dream. His brothers rejected him because his dream was offensive to them. His dream that was given by God challenged the status quo. Well, guess what? The prophets gave Israel a dream. A dream when Jews and Gentiles would worship together. A dream where God would send his special servant to take on the sin of the world. And this dream included a place where grace would trump self-righteousness. A dream where God would come and dwell with his people. A dream in which the kingdom of God would come. That's a great dream. Well, guess what? This guy named Jesus was born in a manger in about 6 8 BC, okay? And, and he, he reached out to outsiders. And he fulfilled the dream of extending grace. And he was fulfilling the dream of the kingdom of God breaking into our world. And he was fulfilling the dream of casting out evil and healing brokenness. And he fulfilled the dream of taking on the sin of the world. And how did he do this? 
through the evil of others. Like Joseph. Joseph's brothers meant harm to him. His dream threatened their positions and power, and they sold him for 20 shekels of silver, the price of a slave between the ages of 5 and 20. Jesus' opponents meant to harm him. His dream threatened their positions of power, so he was sold by someone close to him for 30 shekels of silver, the price of a slave between the ages of 20 and 50. Goosebumps? You see, the, if you know the Joseph story, oh my goodness, what's Jesus doing? It's like Joseph, but better. They killed Joseph, but he rose to power beyond the wildest imaginations of the world. A slave became second in command of Egypt, and through that power and position, he rescued not only the Egyptians from a plague, not only Jacob and his people, but everyone in the ancient Near East came to Egypt because of one man's wisdom that God put in power. Woo! They killed Jesus, but he rose from the grave beyond the wildest imaginations of the world and offered salvation. Not only to one group of people, but the whole world who would repent and trust in him. Just like Joseph, only better. What Jesus' enemies meant for evil, the Father used for good. Jesus' death took on the sin of the world, including your sin and including mine. And that is such good news. And it's the story of Joseph that brought me to that when I read it through the cross. Jesus is fulfilling the dream of the kingdom. What's that? Uh, well, we preached on that for about a year, about three years ago. <laughs> I don't have time right now, but you could start in the Sermon on the Mount. It would include things like this that are going to be countercultural to your dream, by the way. It would include things like loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you. It would include things like reconciliation. Like not judging others, but looking at ourselves in the mirror. It would look like a life of prayer and sometimes fasting in order to grow deeper with Christ. And giving back 10% of the financial wealth that Jesus gives us out of his graciousness. And ultimately, this vision of the kingdom is that we would obey the Father. Now, I have to admit, when I say even those few things, that Jesus' dream, the dream, is offensive. It challenges my dreams of comfort and ease and selfishness. You know, we're told like this, I want to, what do I say? A benevolent lie <laughs> since we were little boys and girls. And the benevolent lie, that's benevolent because, oh, it's well-meaning. Oh, don't get me wrong. But here it is. Follow your dreams. Follow your dreams. But there's only one dream that comes true. And it's the dream. And that's God's vision for the kingdom of heaven. And if I just follow my whims and fancies and whatever I dream up, I may, I probably will because I'm, I'm pretty darn sinful, I'm going to come at odds with the kingdom of God and that dream. And so maybe a better advice for us parents and friends and stuff would be, you know, align your passions and desires with God's dream. Follow that. It's going to look, I mean, there's no like one track, right? Like we all have these different gifts and passions and personalities and oh. I look out in this congregation and just see the diversity of minds and experiences and ages and uh, skill sets and all that stuff. I mean, the kingdom is not 
monochrome. It's not boring. The dream's big enough to fit you. But I am thankful um, that Jesus' dream is coming to pass. And I'm humbled that the Joseph story makes me remember that Jesus' dream is coming and is only good news because he died at my expense and yours. Would you pray with me? Lord, we read the story of Joseph kind of as voyeurs, as people um, reading some novel. And uh, sometimes we scoff at, at the dysfunction and we just can't believe it. We can't believe how resistant the brothers were to Joseph or how much of a little brat he was sometimes. And um, yeah, it, it just, it feels so distant, but I'm thankful that you bring it home um, and you challenge us with it. That you show us how in many ways you're like an unpretentious Joseph with a big dream for the world. And it's coming and it's coming to pass. And you show me where my, my dream, where my, um, my flesh comes into conflict with your best, with your goodness, with your plan for your world. So Lord, I pray for a, a dual gift today for us, that you would convict us in your mercy, Holy Spirit. Convict us of sin. Convict us of where we're at odds with your, uh, your dream of the kingdom. And then I pray for your grace to help us not stay there, but to grow, to, to repent, to take steps in the right direction. And I pray for even more grace, Lord, not only that we would just Okay, we better get on with Jesus' plan. But Lord, would you cause your dream, your vision of the kingdom to grip our imaginations and to be the heartbeat that is inside of our chests? I pray that we would want it and want you more than anything else that would set itself up, up, up in our way. Lord, have mercy. Amen.